The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abram, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful or hard, depending on how you translate it? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. So why did Sarah laugh? Let's ask the stranger. Well, I mean, it's kind of a good question. Uh, why, why does anyone laugh? I think the obvious answer is that we laugh when we find something funny. Certainly that is one reason why we laugh. But if you take a moment to think about it, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons for, le for laughing. The other day, I uh, bumped my grocery cart into somebody else's grocery cart. Uh, or they bumped mine, I, it wasn't clear. It wasn't funny, but at the moment of impact, you know, we locked eyes and like, <laughs> laughed, right? Like, to indicate, it's okay, we're cool with this, I wasn't, I mean, if I left like, <laughs> that would have communicated something very different, right? Like that I intended to do that, but I wanted to say, no, I'm friendly, I'm cool, we can move on. So we just laugh, right? That's, I mean, there's, there's a million different ways, uh, different things that get communicated uh, with laughter. Um, not all laughter, of course, is friendly. Uh, you know, it is, no one wants to be the object of someone's rage, but being the object of someone's laughter can be far worse. I mean, if somebody's raging at you, at least they see you as a, as a legitimate threat. If they laugh at you, then you're just a joke. It can be terribly cruel. Um, so why do we laugh? Lots of reasons. 
You know, I this is a text I've preached before, not here, but at, at uh, St. John. And, you know, part of what I had to do in that sermon is to establish, uh, reestablish the tension that it's at the heart of the story. Um, you know, taking time to summarize some of the things that have happened to that point. But I think if you've been here over the last, I don't know, month and a half, you're aware of that tension. This tension about Sarah and a baby has been driving the story for the last number of chapters. Three weeks ago, well, let's do some summary. Three weeks ago, I read a passage which Abraham, uh, God comes to Abraham, or at that time, Abram, reasserts these promises, and Abram, Abram's like, uh, look, God, I, I, have, I have no kids. When I go... Everything's going to go to Eliezer, my, my employee's son. Well, at that time, God clarifies, no, no, these descendants are going to come from your own body. And then two weeks ago, we read the passage, which, which uh, Sarai gets fed up with this whole thing and says, you know, look, there's a descendants coming from your own body. Great. Clearly, God is not, has no interest in involving me in this. I'm going to just get out of the way. You can marry Hagar and she can have this kid. And it, you know, it works. She gets pregnant. But rather than sort of uh, relieving or diffusing the tension, it only heightens it because there's this, it just creates all this bitterness and this tension, so much so that Hagar ends up fleeing. And then while she's, you know, she flees, uh, she's about as well, uh, God sends this messenger who assures her, look, that child, your child will be blessed. But it's not the promised child. Now, he does not say what Hagar says when she goes back. Does she relay all of that? She clearly relays some of what she heard because when the child's born, Abram does name the child Ishmael, as the angel had told her. But did she mention anything else about the promise? Probably not. Um, because then we get to the passage we looked at last week, in which God shows up again. As I said, God makes this sort of PowerPoint presentation with three points. Point one, all right, Abram, you're now called Abraham. Point two, circumcision is going to be the sign of this covenant. And then point three, Sarah is going to have the baby. And in response to that third point, Abraham laughs. What's the meaning of that laughter? Well, it seems to me the meaning of that is that God just told a funny. That is a joke. Uh, in comedy, there is this thing called the rule of three. You know, the, the first two things, you, you say two things that establish a pattern, and then the third thing disrupts the pattern, and that makes it funny. You know, if you were to say something like, you know, my goals in life are a solid career, a loving marriage, and a face tattoo, right? The third thing, whoa, you didn't see that coming. That makes it funny. And my explaining it makes it even funnier. Um, anyway, but that's the rule of three. Well, for 14 years, or 13 years, for 13 years, Abraham has lived under the assumption that Ishmael is this promised heir. So, and he can hear those first two points as in, as a sense, sort of confirming that. Right? Uh, it, it is Ishmael that justifies Abraham, or Abram becoming Abraham, the father of multitudes. Well, that's going to happen because I have Ishmael. And then uh, God reveals this sign of the covenant. Well, that becomes relevant because Abraham now has 
this promised heir. Okay, so that all makes sense. It's how God's going to make it all official. But then God delivers the punchline. It's not Ishmael. It's all about a descendant coming from Sarah. All of Abraham's expectations are suddenly flipped on their head. It dis, there was a pattern established, at least in his mind, and now that's been disrupted. Oh, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. What? Abram laughs, because this just has to be a joke. Because the idea that this old woman is supposed to give birth to a child just turns everything he's known on its head. But God isn't joking. And you can sort of see the moment in the passage where Abraham realizes that. Because suddenly he imagines, oh my goodness, I am going to have to tell this to Sarah. And, you know, I said the last week I referred to it as like poking a hornet's nest. You know, instead, God, or Abraham says, sort of, he wants, sort of want, look, God, put the world back the way you found it. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. You know, just see him the way I do. Please. Nope, says God. This is how it's going to be. In fact, you'll name that kid Laughter or Isaac. And at that moment, it's hard not to see that name. And in this, our text today, it's, it's a bit of scolding on God's part. Sort of like Joe Pesci in uh, Goodfellas. Oh, you think I'm funny, do you? Oh, you, how about this? How about you go and name your kid Chuckles? Yeah, yeah, tribute to me, you know, uh, the divine jokester, the almighty clown, LOL, right? So it feels like a condemnation of that reaction, the laughter. So, and as I said last week, Abram gets this information, but it's safe to assume he does not pass that on to Sarah. Uh, I mean, first of all, given how bitter this topic has been, I mean, would you? Uh, and, and the fact is, the problem isn't necessarily Sarah having uh, a baby. That, that could that'd be great. The problem is telling her so that she has to expect it. She's supposed to expect it. So she's supposed to find uh, hope despite all the evidence. You know, as we said last week, quoting another movie, uh, read, you know, hope is a dangerous word. Hope can drive you insane. But this God is relentless. He insists that God, or he insists that Sarah hear this promise. So God shows up again. This time God shows up incognito. And it's, it's a way God has not uh, been present in the text until this point. Because how does God show up? As three travelers, three strangers. And they appear to be on their, on their way past Abraham, but Abraham sees them and he convinces them to take a load off. And you may have noticed uh, as we read that passage, but there, Abraham and Sarah are quite the host to these strangers. Uh, hospitality, of course, is a value that is uh, highly, a highly held value in the, the ancient uh, Middle, Middle, East, Middle Eastern culture. Um, and... and i got to decide whether we're going to do Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's going to stand in contrast to what happens when the, when the visitors come to Sodom and Gomorrah, where they do not receive a hospitable welcome. Anyway, 
they are enthusiastic about being hosts to these strangers. And what we find after they've done all these preparations, Abraham is sort of standing off to the side under the tree, sort of ready to wait on them if they have any requests. And uh, they do have a request. They request some information. They want to know where's his wife, Sarah, uh, which had to have been a little jarring given that Abraham assumes that these are strangers, that they name his wife. And you know, he responds, uh, she's in the tent. In other words, she's within earshot. So God says to Sarah what Abram didn't dare to. You're going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. She doesn't require the rule of three. Her whole life has been a setup for this punchline. Why did Sarah laugh? Certainly not. It's certainly not laughter, the best kind of laughter, that laughter where you're just sort of lost in the moment, uh, where you just sort of embrace joy. No, this is the, the kind of laughter that does the opposite, that separates you from the moment, that distances you from the feelings of that moment. You expect me to embrace this kind of hope now? I imagine she laughs in order to keep from screaming and running out of the tent and dragging each of those strangers by the scruff of their necks and throwing them off her property. Why did Sarah laugh? You know, Sarah doesn't hear that question as an expression of genuine curiosity. I mean, this is the other tension within the story is that here they've been, these great hosts, and then her guests ask a question about why, why are you laughing at me? So suddenly, uh, they sound like they're taking offense. Her laughter seems like a sign of disrespect, a lack of hospitality. So she simply pops her head out and says, uh, I didn't laugh. But what's interesting is they ask, why did Sarah laugh? And then they've got a second question. That question never gets addressed. That question is just hanging there. The question is, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? understandably in her panic, she, I'm sure she never even hears that one. So it just, again, it just hangs there, unanswered. But that is the big question. The answer to that question will determine whether God's disruption of patterns, his flipping of expectations on their head, whether that's all a joke or not whether we need to distance ourselves from it, scoff at it, point fingers at it, or do we need to embrace it, abandon ourselves to it, and live with hope? You know, and on the one hand, it's an easy question. I mean, if you can't get this one right, you kind of flunk Bible 101. Of course nothing is too wonderful. We're talking about God, right? God can do anything, but... This is not a question of whether a blindfolded God could win divinity's got talent by standing atop of a, a ball on one leg while juggling six flaming chainsaws. No, this is the question here has very specific implications for Sarah. If she says, gives the right answer, she has to be willing to hope again. 
And that's a dangerous word. So I, I mentioned uh, the training I received this past week. And at, at the end of it, we were asked which of the three types of uh, coaching we were introduced most, helping churches find uh, transition to a new pastor or entering partnerships or creating their legacy. And I said the third one. Uh, and the reason is that I think that that's going to be the defining issue, not only for our denomination, but I think for, for the, the churches in the United States, at least for the next five years, maybe even longer, if we don't do a good job of helping sort that out. What, what does it look like to leave a legacy? You know, one of the things that we were told during the training is that churches who enter into this legacy conversation with uh, using the resources of the conference, they often enter into it way too late. Uh, they wait way too long until there's really not much to be done but close the doors. And now I suppose that the reason people would give for waiting so long is that they, they wanted, they'd want to be able to say, well, we held out hope that nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. That they believed God might just turn things around. But I suspect that's only partly true. I suspect that, that's, that the reason they waited so long is that was a question they didn't dare ask themselves. That it was just left hanging in the air. Because, on the one hand, is it possible that God could turn things around for any given church? Of course it is. Of course it is. That's not too wonderful for the Lord. But is it too wonderful for the Lord to continue the mission of the gospel without this or that particular church? Yeah, no, God, God can do that too. So how do we even begin to grab hold of that question rather than leaving it hanging in the air? Why, how do we begin to hold on to the answer to that question and hold on to it for dear life? You know, as I've said before, it's always helpful to remember that we aren't the first readers of these stories. That more than likely... Really, these stories really became the stories of a community while Israel is in exile, wondering whether they, whether they will leave a legacy, whether, or whether it all comes to an end and they just close up shop in Babylon. So Israel, at that time, Israel as a whole feels a bit like Sarah, forgotten, infertile, trying to make the best of a sort of hopeless situation. At the same time, as her descendants exiled Israel, is also living proof that nothing is impossible for the Lord. That even when it is painful, you must not lose hope. Now, for us as readers of these texts, we don't primarily look to the story of Abram and Sarah. We look to the story of Jesus. And there it's not a story about a woman far too old to have any hope of bringing life. 
There is a story about a man far too dead to have any hope of bringing life. That's the question that hangs over Good Friday. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And of course, the answer to that question is, no, nothing is too wonderful. There is resurrection. And we take, as a church, we take great comfort in the fact that there is resurrection. We take great, we find our hope in that, that God can upturn our expectations in ways that are uh, cause for joy and celebration. But it's also important to remember that while resurrection is wonderful, while it is the great wonder that God works in the world, it, is not, it does not occur apart from some death. Right? And what's more, resurrection is not resuscitation. It's not the same thing. Resuscitation is saying this was dead and it was made alive again. It just brought back to life. It's not, Jesus wasn't just brought back to life. He, Jesus wasn't just restoring what once was. It was Jesus, the resurrection is giving life to something new. I want to be clear about this, right? When you read the Gospels, the resurrected Jesus is the same Jesus that was crucified. I mean, that, they make a big deal of seeing the, the hands, marks of his hands. But when you read those stories, there's something different about him, right? There's always that, there's always, you know, Mary doesn't recognize him until she hears her name. The, the two on the road to Emmaus, they don't, they don't know that it's him until he breaks, made note to them in the breaking of the bread. I mean, it's consistent across all the four Gospels. There's something different about him. Resurrection is something different. And of course, part of what makes it different is he's the conqueror of sin and death. Anyway, but to find our hope in that. We, it requires us to be like Sarah. It requires us to be, to recognize that being hopeful makes us vulnerable. Uh, it's a little scary. It requires us to recognize that there are going to be disruptions. We cannot, you know, to, to, to be a people of resurrection is not to simply say, boy, I think things are going to go back to the way they once were. No, they're not. It's about opening ourselves to something new. You know, in the end, maybe it's not as important that we know the answer to that question as it is important to keep asking it. Say, what is anything too wonderful for the world? Not to let it just hang in there, but to let it poke at us, poke at us a bit, to push us, to require us to do more than just get by. Instead, to live with real hope. Anyway, in chapter 21, God delivers on the promise. Sarah has her baby, new life, and she names him Isaac. Laughter. And that's what this one of the more brilliant things about Genesis is the, the turn that name takes, right? Because no, it's not a name of condemnation. It's a name of celebration. It's not, it's not judging their, their doubt. It is, it is celebrating new life. It's, the, it's, it's not the laughter that distances, you know, it, it creates space from the situation. It's the kind of laughter that embraces the moment. 
uh, it, it, it's the kind of laughter that's an expression of joy. From experience, joy that comes with experiencing all the wonders that God is capable of. The wonders of God who works in the lives of those who put their hope in God's promises. So may we, in our lives individually, in our lives, in our life together, that we find reason to do the same.